I'm Andrew Whitehead, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? This topic of Christian nationalism won't go away. I keep thinking it's going to run out of steam, that people are going to be tired of talking about it. And yet, there it is again, front and center on the front page of the major newspapers and on the cover of magazines. And of course, if you spend much time on Twitter, you know that people continue to debate whether Christian nationalism is good or bad for the country, good or bad for Christianity. Andrew Whitehead is at the center of that debate. He's a professor of sociology and the director of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. In his new book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church, Andrew explains Christian nationalism and how he thinks biblical Christianity confronts, challenges, and corrects it. Now, I think you're going to be able to tell from this conversation that I think the definition of Christian nationalism is pretty slippery. So I asked some provocative questions trying to really pin him down. And I think I came away from this conversation with a better understanding of the term. But first, we start with a game called America or Jesus. Let's dive in. Andrew Whitehead, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, you're a professor, so you are used to giving the pop quizzes, but I want to give you one. (laughs) It's not really a quiz. It's more like a game. It's called America or Jesus. Are you willing to play it with me? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, let's do it. Okay, so here are quotes from people that I promise you will know, both history and people of our day, and I promise all the names that you will know. So your job is to fill in the blank with either America or Jesus. Okay, here's the first one. (laughs) Blank is the world's best last hope. (laughs) Got any ideas? Blank Uh, is the world's best last hope. Yeah, I think America. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. You're the winner. Now, it might surprise you who said this. So here are the people that I have. Three have said this. Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Beto O'Rourke. Here's the next one. Blank is the savior of the world. (laughs) Um, So did Jesus say this or people say this about Jesus? Well, in this situation, the answer is America. And this is by a former president, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson said that America is the savior of the world. Okay, just two more. It's going to be a very short game, short quiz. We must keep blank first in our hearts 
And because the same person said this, I'm going to give you both at the same time. So the first one, we must keep blank first in our hearts. And the last one is blank is the light and glory among the nations. Okay. America, America. or Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I think America. <laughs> <laughs> you figured out my game. And both of those were said by former President Trump. He said, we must keep America first in our hearts, and America is the light and glory among the nations. Now, you can keep playing this game for a really long time because we have a history in our country of conflating our Christian faith with our national identity. And that kind of gets at the heart of Christian nationalism and the discussion around that. You've got a very lucrative career in front of you, I guess, because this is an issue that won't go away, (laughs) right? I mean, you're always going to be at the center of American conversation with this. But one thing I've noticed is that Christian nationalism is something I hadn't really heard of much before January 6, 2021. And then all of a sudden, I can't avoid it anymore. Google searches of Christian nationalism increased after that date. Can you just put that in context a little bit? Why was January 6th the launch of this conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it had to do with how shocking some of those images were of the Capitol being attacked, right? People breaking into the windows and climbing in and just that whole kind of afternoon and into the evening, what we were watching for many Americans was really shocking. But I think for those of us that have been studying Christian nationalism, while still shocking to see that stuff, it wasn't necessarily surprising because we saw a lot of the undercurrents of what was taking place leading up to and then on January 6th had been with us for years. And so, you know, with my colleague Sam Perry, we'd been studying Christian nationalism for probably five or six years at that point when January 6th happened. Our book had come out a year before. And so we were tracking some of these things, you know, when we're looking at some of the racial and ethnic lines that surround Christian nationalism, right? So on January 6th, there's a really famous picture or famous to me, but there's a very provocative picture of a guy walking through the Capitol with the rebel flag, right? Which is something that even the Confederate States didn't accomplish in the Civil War, but there it was, the rebel flag in our capital and in the shirts that they were wearing and, you know, the Proud Boys, they were having prayers. And so there was all this Christian symbolism wrapped up with violence and disorder and hatred and anger and all of this stuff kind of descending. Conspiratorial thinking and QAnon, this was all descending on that day. So I think that's what really brought it all out into the open for many folks that maybe weren't really tracking with this or following, you know, some of those conversations. But I think a lot of those elements that were at play, we'd been tracking for a while. And so now the conversation started, people could have a framework to help understand, well, what is this? Because, you know, seeing the cross and then seeing, you know, folks use implements to beat police officers, right? Like that created some dissonance and good dissonance, you know, I wish it wouldn't have come to that. But now moving forward, I think folks are ready to have that conversation. The Christian imagery, Christian symbolism, the Jesus save signs, the worship songs, the prayers associated with January 6th were very shocking. I was stunned by the whole thing and how it played out. I didn't know that that was possible. So it's interesting that you're talking about your book that had come out before. That's Taking America Back for God that you wrote with Sam Perry. And it's an excellent book too. read that 
and really enjoyed and learned a lot from that. But one of the things I think that we're still arguing over is the definition of Christian nationalism. And I think we're kind of watching in real time as people kind of redefine the word or fight over the definition. And I think, at least from my perspective, some people are using it as kind of a a political slur. Like, I can shut you down by calling you a Christian nationalist. Other people are trying to redefine it into something that they're very proud of, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said not that long ago, I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly, we should all be Christian nationalists. So I want to get in like a formal definition, which you do in your book, American Idolatry. I want to get into a, a formal definition, but Before we do that, I just want a quick take if these things I'm going to mention, if they are representative of Christian nationalism, would you call them Christian nationalists or maybe a symptom of Christian nationalism? So let's start with an easy one. Former Army General Mike Flynn has this tour. He calls it the Reawaken Tour, and I think it's produced by Charisma Magazine. Is that in the realm of Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think we see a lot of really provocative examples of Christian nationalism at those rallies where folks are pointing to, you know, we need to take this nation back. We need godly people to run for school board, you know, your county seats, you know, all of these things because we need the right people in power in order to ensure that our country flourishes. And so I think right off the bat, I do want to say I don't like labeling folks Christian nationalists. I always want to focus and talk about Christian nationalism because people can embrace it more or less. And so I think, yeah, this discussion is good where you're going to see very strong elements of Christian nationalism at the Reawaken Tour, for sure. Well, and I think and one recently, the former general who was widely respected inside the military for much of his career and now has kind of doesn't share the respect that he once did. He talked about pastors should stop preaching from the Bible and start preaching from the Constitution which is kind of a red flag, I'd say. But I appreciate your distinguishing a Christian nationalist from Christian nationalism. So let's keep that in mind as we have this conversation. How about this one? Is having a United States flag inside of a church, is that a sign of Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think that is one of the first things I talk about in my book when I kind of go through this field guide of Christian nationalism. And so again, I would say that whether or not, you know, you could see that in a church and then ultimately say, okay, everybody here must have gone to January 6th, right? And they must all just strongly embrace Christian nationalism. Again, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want people to do that. But I do think having an American flag at the front of the sanctuary, we should really have a conversation about if we took that out, how might our congregation react? And if there would be a lot of anger and maybe even vitriol, then we have to ask, well, why is that? Why is removing the American flag from a sanctuary causing such an uproar? Does that reveal to us areas where we might be conflating or too tightly intertwining our American identity with our Christian identity or, you know, as residents of the kingdom of God? Because I always kind of ask if you were a Christian from another country visiting, how might that American flag at the front feel to you when you are not native to this country, but you're worshiping with other folks, would that create dissonance? And I think for many of us, it might. And so I think that's where I would want to start. So it isn't as though this means everybody here's, you know, embracing Christian nationalism, but I do think that it is at least a signal 
that there's something going on that maybe we need to think through and reconsider. I appreciate the way you put that, imagining someone from a different country attending the worship service and seeing that flag up there. And you could kind of reverse it a little bit or twist it and say, what if you were visiting another country? If you were visiting China and went into a church there to worship and there was a Chinese flag there, how might that make you feel? Okay, this one I think is a little tougher. At least it is for me. In our local community, the school decided they were going to have a gender closet. So this is a place where kids could come in and switch clothes and then leave those clothes back at school so that they could kind of keep their identity apart from their family. Now, it wasn't ever said that explicitly, but it's pretty obvious. And there was a big debate in the community. And there were some people who said, hey, I'm a Christian and I want to run for school board because I want to bring my Christian values onto the school board. And you mentioned earlier the Reawakened Tour and how they were encouraging people to run for these kinds of offices. So let's say I want to run for school board to bring my Christian values into the school system. Is that Christian nationalism? Well, here again, I think where the the line should be drawn or gets drawn between Christian nationalism and then an American citizen being engaged in the civil process, you know, the civil conversation and representing, you know, their beliefs and values. I think the line there becomes when someone says, well, I want to run for school board because I know that this is what we need to do. And this is what, you know, we're commanded to do because of my faith. And now I need to go make sure we implement that. I think that is where we're bleeding into Christian nationalism because it's all about a power over other folks. It's not about a power that seeks to serve, to seek a common good, to seek to be in conversation with our neighbors, whether they're Christians, religious minorities, or people of no faith. I think for those of us that want to be involved in the civil sphere, and I encourage us to be involved, I think as Christians, we should be about what's happening in our communities. I think there we need to have a stance or a way that we can guard against moving over into the realm of Christian nationalism is that we recognize that we are just one voice and one seat at the table. We aren't at the head of the table. We're not here to impose what we know, quote unquote, or believe this is the one way we need to go. But to come and to speak and say, this is you know what I believe or think, but then to be in conversation with others, to collaborate, communicate, and not to try to exert power over other people. I think that's the way that we can be faithfully Christian and involved and hopefully seeking the flourishing and the good of all. Because again, to be in a pluralistic democratic society, that's what it'll entail. But we find over and over that Christian nationalism is not really interested in democracy or sharing power or other voices. It's interested in our way or the highway. And I think that's where, you know, in a school board or if it's the state legislature or even the federal government, I think that's where we can start to hopefully find the line and ensure that we're, you know, acting faithfully as Christians, but also representing and abiding by the system of government that we have in place. Yeah, I appreciated in your book that you were very clear that you think Christians should be involved in the cultural debate, involved in government, run for positions, support candidates. You're not saying that Christians have to sit out that debate. And I appreciated that. But what then becomes difficult is to figure out, well, how does Christian nationalism develop out of that? So William Wilberforce, famously the British member of parliament, who I think it's kind of, you know, unarguable that he took his Christian convictions into Parliament and said, 
I believe slavery is wrong and the slave trade is wrong. And I believe it because the Bible tells me. And I am going to argue hard for the end of the slave trade, what eventually led to the end of slavery inside of Britain. And he was very clear that these were his Christian convictions, and he thought they were right because they were from God in the Bible. So now when I hear that, I'm starting to think that while I'm sure you would agree with him that we should have ended the slave trade, Britain should have, we should have much earlier than we actually did at the end of the Civil War, I'm starting to think that if you're consistent, you've got to say, well, yeah, he was flirting with Christian nationalism there. Am I right or do I have that wrong? You know, I think here it comes down to the definition of Christian nationalism. This is where we're really focused on with Christian nationalism. It's a particular expression of Christianity privileged in the public sphere and one that seeks to cement access and a privileged access to power for a particular expression of Christianity. And in this particular expression of Christianity, it really is about benefiting the us and the in-group. And in the U.S., and it doesn't quite work with your example with William Wilberforce. It sort of does. But in the U.S., it tends to be one that is primarily white and conservative, both religiously and politically. That's the Christianity of Christian nationalism. So it isn't just bringing any Christian belief or value into the public sphere that then becomes Christian nationalism. But it's one that seeks to, again, maintain and privilege access to power for this particular group. And historically in the U.S., it's been this one. So when I hear that example, I think, no, that isn't Christian nationalism, because what it's doing is trying to leverage power and privilege to the benefit of the broadest cross-section of humanity. So freeing folks from being enslaved, I think in many ways, is not trying to keep power for this small group or for the quote-unquote us, but trying to expand and establish flourishing in a common good for more people, even at the expense of the group that would have benefited most from the slave trade, which were white, you know, in this case, Western European or, you know, in the Americas, Americans. And so I think that's where we can draw the line, where if it is a group that is saying, yeah, because of my Christian beliefs, I believe that we should do X, because again, it's going to expand flourishing it's going to lift up the marginalized, it's going to release the prisoner, set the oppressed free, right? All of those things. I think that is a faithful representation of the Christian faith in politics because it isn't about keeping power for us, but leveraging power to the benefit of all. And I think that's where we can draw the line. Okay, so that's interesting, and that's kind of where these questions were leading to, and I was going to ask you eventually for a clear definition, and I think you gave it to me there. So one of the things that I've wondered is whether it's Christian nationalism for Dr. King and his very church-led, pastor-led movement— Christian movement. And would you consider that Christian nationalism? And I think you're saying, if I hear you right, no, that's not Christian nationalism because they were trying to bring flourishing to more people. And so they weren't trying to protect power, but share power, I think is what you're saying. Is that right? I think that's an excellent example. And we get this question a lot, right? So in many ways, folks try to do it as kind of the Scotia type of thing. But again, that's where how we define Christian nationalism really matters because it's a particular expression of Christianity. So the civil rights movement, I think, is an excellent example of how we can distinguish between faithful Christian expression within the sphere of politics or Christian nationalism, because 
you know, the outcomes of the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, those were uses of power. Those were coercive uses of political power in the sense that with the Voting Rights Act, there were Americans who did not want to expand access to the vote to racial and ethnic minorities or essentially Black Americans. But this legislation demanded that that be true, right? And so as we look at Reverend King or the civil rights movement and the work that they were doing, and you're right, their Christian convictions were pushing them in this direction. They were leveraging power and using coercive power, but again, to the benefit of all. So it wasn't as though they said, now with the Voting Rights Act, you know, white Americans, you've been able to vote and have access to the democratic process for centuries now. With this act, now you don't get to vote, but now black Americans get to vote finally, right? And have full access. They weren't saying that. All they were saying was, you need to allow everyone to vote. Right. And so that's the difference. Whereas for many, especially leading up to that through slavery, Jim Crow, you know, on until the 1960s, we had many white Christians arguing explicitly from their faith, from the Bible, that we should maintain segregation, right? That these Jim Crow laws should be upheld. And so again, it isn't just bringing Christian convictions into the public sphere, but how we're defining the quote unquote us, who gets to benefit and is an expanding access. And so in that sense, that's not Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is focused on benefiting the us and the in-group, maintaining power and privilege to the detriment of other groups, to marginalizing other folks. And that's where the civil rights movement, Reverend King, I think is a great example to, to distinguish between how you can be actively involved, but it's all about, well, who is the us that benefits and to what ends? And I think that should hopefully help us have these types of conversations to ensure that we're living faithfully and engaging, I think, in the public sphere. In your book, you mentioned Albert Moeller. He's the president of Southern Seminary and a prominent figure, political, religious figure. Anyway, you say that he acknowledges that Christian nationalism exists, but then says it's very rare. And you're disagreeing with him, and you're saying it's more popular or more widely believed than he would imagine or that he wants to admit. And a lot of that depends on your definition. So I want to keep pushing at this just a little bit further, and then we'll move on. But let's say that I am a person who wants everybody to flourish, and I believe as a Christian that everybody flourishes if biblical principles are followed, not only in their personal life, but their family, and even the nation will prosper if Christian principles are followed. So it's not like I am going to make anybody do this, but I do want to run for political office so that I can band together with like-minded people and establish laws that honor Christian principles. And let's say we give you a little more specific. Let's say that we believe that gender-affirming care for young people, minors, is not going to help people flourish, but is in fact going to harm people, harm kids. So we band together as Christians because of our Christian convictions, maybe like Dr. King, maybe like William Wilberforce, and we want laws that ban people, ban doctors from practicing gender-affirming care, what's called gender-affirming care, on minors. Is that Christian nationalism? Well, I think there again, it's the posture and the way that it's done. So is it, you know, the Bible tells me it's true, and so now I am going to go out, and because of that and that alone, I am going to do all of this against maybe the wishes of families or young people or medical professionals 
or those that are on, you know, the opposite side of the aisle politically. I think then, yeah, that's moving into Christian nationalism where it's shutting down conversation. It's shutting down any sort of collaboration or taking those into account. And so I think here again, like, you know, we could bring up a particular example, but in many ways, I think faithfully engaging with the culture, politics as Christians is always going to be ad hoc. It's going to be with the situation as it arises. And so with many of these, whatever type of situation we want to talk about, a lot of times there's one particular political outcome that folks will say, well, we need to do this and this alone because this is what the Bible says. When in many ways, many of these issues are incredibly complex and there are a lot of different stakeholders and there's different people with expertise that need to be listened to. But so often it gets distilled into this, we have to do X or else we are not faithfully you know, following scripture. We're not faithfully following Jesus. And then anything else is viewed as anathema. And I think that's where we really miss the opportunity to you know, work with, collaborate. In many ways, we have to contradict, but respecting the political processes we have in this country. And so you know, with whatever topic we bring up and we could, you know, keep going through them, I think for Christians, the big thing is, are we listening to the other voices at the table? And are we thinking through what those stakeholders think is really important? Are we finding ways that we can hopefully encourage what we hold to be true or think is important in a way that these other groups don't feel as though they are being shut down, marginalized, pushed out, all of those things. And that, I think, is hopefully some of the posture that we can bring to whatever topic. And there are many hot-button issues, right, that we face right. today with any of those topics. The way I think about this is that somebody's going to hold power. Somebody holds power. Somebody's going to make the decisions. So if you just think recently the California state legislature passed a bill saying that if a parent, in a custody dispute, if a parent is unwilling to affirm a minor's transition, that that could be used by the court against them as they decide, wouldn't totally decide the issue, but it would be one factor it could be used against them. So somebody's going to make decisions. Somebody is going to have power. But what I see your opponents argue is that wouldn't we rather have Christians, and this is the best case scenario, I'm putting the best spin <laughs> right. on the argument, wouldn't we rather have Christians be the ones in power looking out for everybody, looking out for the best according to our Christian convictions. And of course, other people can participate in the conversation. But we didn't say to Dr. King, hey, Dr. King, you need to compromise with these other people. We would have said, no, you need to get power so that black Americans have the right to vote, so that black Americans have access to housing. So I guess somebody's going to have the power. Shouldn't we want it to be Christians well, I mean, it's a fair question and it's fair pushback, right? And I get the understanding too and the thought process of, well, if somebody's going to have it, shouldn't it be us? But I think too, we have to keep in mind that we aren't coming to where we find ourselves today completely disengaged from our history and past. And that sets the context of where we're at. And so much of my wrestling with these issues comes through, and I think we need to have it kind of flow through um, the historical context. And how has this gone previously? And in the U.S., not all, but in many ways, 
you know, white Christians were in power or were saying, you know, we need to have more power or bring our Christian convictions. But it was in ways that now we see really were harmful to many other folks and did create a society where there is inequality. And so I think that's where we need to be having these conversations, whereas before they would have been taken for granted. Just to be questioning, like, shouldn't we have the power or not? At least that's a step. Because we could say, well, maybe we need to augment how we wield this power or what we do. Because to be honest, too, if we listen to the voices of those who aren't Christians, whether religious minorities or racial and ethnic minorities, they're coming to us and telling us that, you know, there are many of these voices that are saying, you know, this society and how things are working isn't working for me in the same way that it probably is for you. And I say you as in like myself, right? Like a white Protestant man. And so I need to be listening to that and thinking through the implications of that because there isn't a lot, to be honest, a lot of goodwill or trust built up in those other communities for Christians saying, hey, let me just bring my Christian convictions into the public square. Like, there's a lot of skepticism of that. And we haven't, I don't think, really earned the right to have everybody place their trust in us. Like, hey, you Christians, you know, we know you care about us. Like, that's not what we're hearing. And so I think as we wrestle with and confront Christian nationalism, this desire to only have this tunnel vision of like, we know what's best. We know that this country is going to flourish if we have power and can do these things. And let's just go. I think that's where we've crushed a lot of people. And so these conversations need to happen. But we have to, I think, start from this place of understanding that we don't deserve it any more than anybody else. And we have to come with not only our convictions, but ways of talking about those and moving towards the end goal in a way that brings people together. And I could give an example of that too, where, you know, from my history and growing up in the church, right? Abortion was a big deal. And it was, we need to outlaw abortion. That's what needs to happen to limit what takes place in the U.S. But then for me, one of the kind of the cracks in that was like, well, then why wouldn't we, if we want to lower rates of abortion, want to embrace anything that could lower that, right? And not just outlaw abortion, but providing more healthcare or contraception or training and sex education, all of those lower unwanted pregnancies, which unwanted pregnancies are, you know, the cause of seeking an abortion. So when the Christian community is saying, well, we don't want to do any of these other things that lower unwanted pregnancies, but we just want to outlaw abortion. That's where I'm like, well, there's a hypocrisy there, right? If we were really focused on wanting you know, to lower abortion, we would want to do everything we could. But so often the lines get drawn, well, we'll do this, but not these things because it benefits a particular group politically. And so with any of these topics or, you know, things that we bring up, I think the goal and the hope is not just that we get the right people in power, but through what we would want to see take place, are we embracing all the avenues and working with others to get to an end goal? Because yeah, collaboration is going to have to happen. And hopefully then fewer folks will be marginalized or shut out of the process as well.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. You know that Keith and I both care deeply about the intersection of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom and culture and politics. What you might not realize is that we have a far deeper passion for God's word. Before we started Truth Over Tribe, we had a different podcast that we are still running called 10-Minute Bible Talks. And if you're trying to find a way to get consistent time with God throughout the week in his word, I want to encourage you to go check out that podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talks. We do little 10-minute podcast devotionals chapter by chapter through the Bible. And just like this podcast, I think you'll find it interesting and thought-provoking and challenging in all the right ways. But above all else, you'll find that you are pointed to Jesus, to love him more in your heart, to follow him with your hands in your life, and to see how the gospel of the kingdom truly transforms everything. So pause the episode and get onto your favorite podcast app and search for 10-minute Bible talks and start that journey today. I think you're right. When the Christians get power, it doesn't always go so well. And anytime Christians get power, it's always hard to discern, am I using this on behalf of others? Am I using this for human flourishing? Or am I using this to protect myself and my rights and what I have gained? So I hear you that historically Christians haven't used their power very well. One of the things that's different about your new book, American Idolatry, is that you're more personal. I mean, you talk about growing up as a Christian, which you just mentioned, and it seems like you're coming from a place where you care about the church and that Christian nationalism isn't just something that's dangerous for our country, democracy, politically, but it's also dangerous for the church. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us? Like a little bit about your own personal faith experience, but why Christian nationalism is dangerous to Christianity? Yeah, so I grew up in a small rural town in northern Indiana and was raised in the church and was very active in it. And it was where I was taught a lot of these kind of foundational beliefs and values of Christianity and loving Jesus and the Bible and God and our neighbor and all of those things. But in the place that I grew up, in the religious tradition I grew up, there was a really unquestioned combining of American identity and Christian identity. To be one was to be the other. And there were little moments on my journey where, you know, some of the inconsistencies started to show through, where to be a faithful Christian might mean that I have to go against what the nation might want or think is best. Or if I was going to embrace what the nation is doing or America is doing, it might set me at odds with following Jesus faithfully. And I think those were the moments that really started to, for in me on that journey, starting to wrestle with, well, then how do I live out this Christian faith in a way that is faithful to Jesus and puts the kingdom of God first? And I think for me, as I've been on this journey and writing the book, and even since then, really recognizing that and coming to terms with and continue to wrestle with through conversations like we're having or with others, what it means to be Christian and how to live that out. And I think with Christian nationalism, as I look at the history and read where we've come from even before the U.S. was formed, but how when Christianity came to these shores, how it was intertwined with seeking power over others and fear and threat of those others taking our power and then using violence to you know, really keep those boundary lines clear and maintain access to self-interested power. 
I think wrestling with those things showed me that to embrace Christian nationalism in many ways actively opposes you know, faithfully following Jesus, which I came to believe and understand on this journey and in the Christian communities that I was a part of, that he came to seek and provide flourishing, not only personally for us, like in our need for a savior, but in how we relate to other people, right? And how we relate to other people or how we organize ourselves politically and the systems and social structures that we create and are a part of that he came to redeem all of that, that we're praying. And when he taught us to pray, we're praying that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It isn't just when I die, I'll go to be with Jesus. And so now my sins are forgiven and that's it. But that Jesus has something to say with how I relate to others and how I relate to the marginalized and the oppressed. And that it isn't just a spiritual oppression, but also a physical embodied reality that the gospel should be good news to the literal oppressed and marginalized, not just the spiritual oppressed or marginalized. And so those are themes that I've wrestled with, continue to wrestle with, that I try to bring out in this book to get us to look and think about how a desire to privilege a particular expression of Christianity blinds us to the embodied reality of the gospel and good news in the here and now, and being able to do that work together in the here and now. One of the things I appreciate about the book is that as you break down in the later chapters, and I want to get into a couple of these, power, fear, immigration, that not only do you say here is how it is being misused in the context of Christian nationalism, but you say this is how Christians should think about power. And we've already talked about that one a fair amount, so we don't need to stay on that. But I do want to talk a little bit about fear. You talk about how Christian nationalism exploits people's fear, fear of change and fear of losing power. But in some sense, that's what every candidate does. Every political party, their message is, <laughs> you know, watch out. Those are really bad people on the other side, and they're going to destroy your way of life. They're going to enact, you know, racist laws, or they're going to take your kids away or whatever it is. Every political party says, be warned about that other side, vote for me and I'll protect you because we've gotten to a point where we really don't vote for someone. We vote against someone or against a party more than for a party. And so here's my thing is it almost feels like there's a sense in which the normal political process is being called Christian nationalism. In other words, the normal political process, what passes, I wish it didn't, but what passes for campaigning now is now called, oh, be careful, because that's what Christian nationalists do, and that is bad. Well, But everybody does it. So is it bad when the Democrats and Republicans do it, when the you know different groups do it? Do you see my point? I do. I do. I think, you know, one thing that's happening here is when we're talking about whether it's political processes or how social groups operate, fear and sense of threat are incredibly powerful motivators. And this is going to happen whether it's, you know, as I'm talking about in this book, Christian nationalism, or if you're in a different country and looking at the religious nationalism that exists there, because there isn't anything unique about Christianity or America that religious nationalism exists. But we're living in the U.S. and Christianity is the faith that is a majority faith for the whole time. And so this is the expression of religious nationalism we're dealing with. And so with any type of group and political motivation, fear and a sense of threat are there. And of course, 
you know, Democrats or those who oppose Donald Trump, let's say, right, will highlight the sense of threat and fear of, hey, you know, this is a demagogue and democracy and the guardrails of democracy are being attacked. And so that's going to happen as well. And of course, that's motivating, right? It's going to get folks to do that. But just like when we're looking at the civil rights movement and saying, well, you know, bringing Christian convictions into the public sphere, is that Christian nationalism? And it isn't. Just when you use fear and threat, that doesn't mean that this automatically makes it Christian nationalism. Now, I do think Christians of all stripes, whether you're more politically conservative or progressive or liberal, however you want to call it, I think we need to be really careful as Christians checking into, is fear and sense of threat motivating me in this sense of how to act? Is it wanting me to shut down conversation with those? Am I being moved more towards, you know, wanting to be against someone or a group or for them, right? And wanting to move and give what I can for them. I think we can all be a part of that. And that's something that's, you know, good for all of us. But I do think that empirically, the greater threat that we have, not only to democracy, to a gospel that is encouraging flourishing in this instance is Christian nationalism. And again, that particular expression of Christianity. And so that's where I'm focusing kind of this book in my work is dealing with that problem. It isn't to say that there aren't problems elsewhere or that there's planks or, you know, specks in other people's eyes. But I think it's this, because when we saw January 6th saying that there were election improprieties, wanting to stop the certification of those results having crosses and banners and Jesus save signs, all of those things, that was a particular expression of Christianity. And not only, it's not like everybody that embraces it was at the Capitol on the insurrection, but the implicit kind of sympathizing with those views creates fertile ground for extremism to take root. And I think that's where as faithful Christians and citizens, we need to be focusing right now. It isn't as though there aren't other problems elsewhere or on the other side of the political spectrum. But there are implications that are much more real and acute at this moment. So I think that's where I would kind of want to push on that. I think I agree with you largely, especially when it comes to Christian nationalism being dangerous to Christianity. And that would be my main concern in all of this is while I am concerned about the political process of our country, and I think that's a noble thing to be worried about and work for, I'm more concerned that Christian nationalism infringes upon the gospel and distorts the gospel and changes the gospel. And fear is a motivator that, you know, when we're obsessed with fear, when we're concerned about our way of life, we do a lot of things that are ugly and hateful and harmful. One of the things that people are afraid of, and you mentioned this in the book, is that the nation is changing, that it's becoming more minority or there'll be a majority of minorities in the fairly near future if it hasn't already happened. It's already happened in some places. I want to play you a clip, if you would allow me. It's about two minutes long, and it's probably something that you've seen, but I'm not sure everybody has. This is the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and he's talking to a town hall meeting in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's early in September of 2023 when he's having this conversation and he's talking about immigration and I just want us to listen to his language and you know I'm going to come back and ask you again is this Christian nationalism in the African-American mayor of New York City let's just watch it real quick never in my life 
Have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to? I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we're in Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. How many of you organized to stop what they're doing to us? How many of you were part of the movement to say, we're seeing what this mayor is trying to do and they're destroying New York City? It's going to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. I said it last year when we had 15,000. I'm telling you now with 110,000. The city we knew, we're about to lose. So, Andrew, I, had, I want to come back to you on that. We're listening to Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City there. And I think it's important for me to say that people who listen to our podcast will know I've never voted for Donald Trump, nor will I ever. But if he had said this, or if a conservative religious leader had said this, there would be an uproar. And the language he used, they are coming to ruin our city. And he mentions these specific countries they are coming from, and they're going to want all these services. And it's language that if Donald Trump had used it, it would be called Christian nationalism, I think. Or if a conservative religious figure had used it, it would have be called ugly Christian nationalism. But for some reason, I've never heard anybody say that about these comments, although they've been out for a while. So help me understand, am I wrong? Is this not ugly or is it okay? Is this Christian nationalism? Do you agree that in the mouth of someone else it would be called that? Help me. I don't understand. It's a genuine question. There's a lot in there to unpack. So as I listened to that, it really reminded me a lot of James Dobson when he did the letter from the southern border. This was a number of years ago, but I highlight it in the book. A lot of the same language, right? They and like overwhelm. And he used much more descriptive language than even Mayor Adams did there. But I think in both, what really comes through is highlighting this sense of fear and threat, like you said. And it isn't as though those aren't real, right? We feel fear and threat. That's going to exist. And especially in a country like ours that's as big as ours with all these different groups and communities living in it, there's a lot of differences and changes that are taking place and happening. So it isn't as though you know, Christians should magically just not feel concerned about things. But I think with what he had to say, with what 
James Dobson had to say about this particular issue. I think in both, you know, whether it was enough or perhaps folks did and, you know, you and I missed it, calling out the dehumanizing rhetoric and trying to think as Christians, how should we view and see these folks? Not just that they're coming, but why they're coming. What are the reasons for their coming? Because that's wrapped up in and how the United States has operated on the world stage. What what do we owe them? What do we owe the global community? How can we leverage what we have? And yeah, one city might feel overwhelmed. And is that a failure of broadly our federal system to be able to manage this or to support other groups or those that have been at the forefront of the real humanitarian crisis in different places or the need that people have? Are we resourcing those communities to be able to better serve and save and feed and clothe and all of those things. And so, yeah, whether it's James Dobson or Mayor Adams in that particular clip, and there may be more, you know, I didn't hear Mayor Adams explicitly citing America as a Christian nation, and he might have other times, you know, I don't know. But yeah, as I look at James Dobson's letter where he's explicitly highlighting, you know, we're a Christian nation, we defend our Christianity and our culture. I think those are somewhat different, but I think by all accounts, for me, speaking in terms of they and dehumanizing rhetoric, I think Christians should want to do better. But again, I really want to underscore, there aren't any simple like, you know, red pill answers where it's like, oh, this solves it, right? This is an incredibly complex issue that Christians need to be a part of. If it costs us something, well, isn't that what we're called to? And if it means that we have to leverage or set aside even some of the privileges and benefits of being American where it may not be quite as easy for us. Isn't that what we should be engaged with or or pushed towards? And again, I'm not going to be able to sit here and be like, hey, this is the Christian response to refugee and immigration, you know, in the 2023 U.S. But what are those values? What can we push towards? How can we be in the conversation that doesn't dehumanize? Well, and I don't think Mayor Adams brought up anything about being a Christian nation, at least nothing that I heard. And so I do understand that that's a little bit different than your example of James Dobson's letter a few years ago. But what I think is that sometimes the debate over something like immigration, and it's a tough issue. I mean, nobody has the right answers. When Donald Trump was in office, he didn't solve the problem. When previous presidents, regardless of their party, were in office, they didn't solve the problem either. So I don't know why we expect this current administration to have the secret answer. You know, nobody seems to be able to figure this out. But what I see is that Christians sometimes who are interested in preventing illegal immigration, that they're labeled as Christian nationalists. And my biggest fear is that we're going to dilute Christian nationalism because we're just calling whether you want power, you tell your voters to be afraid of the other party, or you are against illegal immigration. When all that's labeled Christian nationalism, and I'm not saying by you, but out there in the popular culture, then I'm afraid we dilute it. And I think Christian nationalism, as more narrowly defined as you have done so, by saying, it is limiting who benefits and it's about accumulating power and keeping people out of power in the name of your faith. I think that is a really serious issue. I read this book, The Great Dechurching. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's by Ryan Burge, who's another sociologist in your field and a couple pastors at a church. And one of the things that they were saying is that perhaps the way conservatives are deconstructing is by becoming more secular in their output. They still call themselves Christians, but they don't really 
go to church, right? That there's this group of people who call themselves evangelicals now, but they're not connected in any meaningful way to church. And conservative Christians deconstruct, some of them, not all, deconstruct into this kind of political world of Christian nationalism and other variations. Do you think that explains part of the support for Donald Trump among the 81% of white evangelicals who famously voted for him? Is that at least in part due to people who still take the identity of evangelicals, but don't actually engage with the faith, go to church, aren't active in their faith? Or am I being too hopeful? Yeah, I think the empirical evidence, even from Ryan Burge and other things I've seen him write, or another political scientist, Paul Jupe, there's a lot of really strong evidence that it isn't just the non-attending Christians or conservatives that supported Trump, and that's where we get this number. But it was from the outset, even in the primaries, church-going evangelicals, and white evangelicals is that 81% that we hear a lot about, but it was those that are going to church. They were voting and voting for Trump or supporting Trump from the very beginning. And so I think that in this sense, from my point of view, where talking about Christian nationalism helps us to be more precise, that it's that cultural framework helps explain why so many church-going white evangelicals were supporting Donald Trump or some of these policies that he supported as well, rather than just all white evangelicals are saying that this blanket term, it's this whole group, right? But it's those that embrace this to varying degrees that helps us understand some of the reasoning why, right? And some of the, how they were making those decisions and pushing forward in that. Well, Andrew Whitehead, we really appreciate your time. Your book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Your other book was Sam Perry, Taking America Back for God. Where are you active? Where can people follow you? Or what social media or other places do you post articles? I'm on Twitter for, I don't know, what is, you know, X Twitter, how long that lasts, <laughs> I'm still there, but also on Instagram. But yeah, started a Substack. So it's my name.substack.com. So people can find me there. And then two, just a really quick plug. I just recorded a four-part limited series podcast on Christian nationalism. And so the first two episodes, I'm not sure when this episode that I'm on here with you goes live, but here at the very beginning of October, the third episode just came out today. The fourth one will be in a week. So yeah, over you know mid-September to mid-October, um, putting those out. And so yeah, for folks that would be interested, it's called American Idols. For folks that are interested in that too, can find that, find me there. But yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. So thank you. Well, if you ever want to see Andrew debate with the hard right, what I would call the Christian nationalist right, Twitter, <laughs> he's a fun follow. Oh, you just kind of sit back and watch. And I don't engage, but he's got some that come back over and over and over. Repeated customers, shall we say. I always learn a little bit, not much, but a little bit. But it your Substack and, yeah. <laughs> and your podcast, some were promising. Hey, thanks so much for yeah. your time. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.